Amen. All right. So my wife tried to call me because I tried to call her a bunch. See how she is? And uh, I I don't. Well, I'm just going to let it go. So a couple of things. I left my clicker at home. This is not my normal clicker. It's a different one, and this one's not working. So I'm trying to. Co- I'm going to try and coordinate with Sally, um, because so that uh, to try to keep the slides going. I've, the reason why I tried to call my wife, she was calling me, is because I was hoping maybe I could catch her so that she could bring it. Oh, but um, it's kind of late now. All right, that's one. Number two, I really appreciate everybody's prayers who were praying for us. We had a great trip from the perspective of getting to see you know family members. Um, but because of illness, we weren't able to see any of Diane's family. So, um, so you know, maybe Diane gets to make a special trip to go see her mom and her sisters. Um, so I don't know. You know, we were battling. Diane had that inte- that 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 um, that stomach flu that's been going around, and then my sister got it. My mom got it. Just it was just a, a lot of that was battling. And did, did you get it as well? I got congested. You might be able to hear I'm a little bit. That's what I was going to get. I've got some lozenges. <clears throat> um, I knew there was something I wanted to get. Some lozenges. Uh, so, um, these are great. One is uh, some silver, and the other is zinc. So, putting all kinds of metal in my body right now. Um, but uh, I just got congested, and so I was kind of battling that. So, but anyway, I hope you all had good holidays, and. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to be back, and we're ready to get into this. So we're going through this study. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Um, we're on Lesson 3 this week, and uh, the main source, um, I don't know why. it's not. That's not changing back there. Just, you know what, just ignore it. We'll just keep going. As long as you can stay with me here. I've got this to see where I am. I just kind of use that to see if you are seeing this. But if Sally is seeing that we're on, I'm not worried about it. All right. So our main source is, is the book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible, by Michael Heiser. And um, uh, I know several of you have the book. It's great. Read ahead. Uh, if you've got questions, highlight. Put questions in the margin. Bring them up. Let's talk about them. Um, it's, it's, it's a really good read. It's an easy read. The sections are not long. Uh, but our, what's our goal? Our goal is this. I'm going to take quote right from the forward. This is our goal. The Bible is accessible to everyone, but parts of it can be perplexing. How many know that sometimes you're reading the Bible, and I don't know what in the world they're saying. Sometimes it's weird. Sometimes it seems boring. Um, and so that's what this book is about. The book is trying to make the effort to make the Bible come alive in a new way, to take these parts that are difficult, that are hard, that are perplexing. In fact, some of it, in things we covered so far, are, are even more overview items, even though there's some specificity. After reading the, this book, after doing this study, the goal is that you're not bored with your Bible anymore. And to, to try to maybe look at some passages that have always been confusing, that seem to be insignificant, and discover that we don't want to skip anything that's insignificant. That if it's strange, it's weird, it's different, it's probably really important. Um, and so the part of doing that is going to be spending time connecting to the original time and place of the Scriptures. 
it seems a lot of what seems weird is because they didn't live in our day and age. And if you if you just travel to a different culture in our day and age, things can be different and weird. Now, take that 2000 years ago to 3500 years ago. It can really get strange and weird. So that's our goal. Um, while I'm doing it, if you're reading the if you're reading the book and you're following the studies, I'm doing it a little bit different order than what's in the book. In the book, they go through all the Old Testament ones, and then they go through all the New Testament ones. What I'm doing is I'm doing an Old Testament and a New Testament, an Old Testament and a New Testament. Tonight, we might hit a couple of Old Testaments and one New Testament. So just kind of an overview of what we've hit so far. I'm not going to go deep, just what we hit. The first thing we talked about in the Old Testament was the Ancient's Guide to the Galaxy, Old Testament Cosmology, and understanding that when you – can you do the next slide – when you're looking at in the Old Testament, and it comes out everywhere once you see it, they understood that, that uh, you know, God created out of this abyss, this void, empty, deep, watery abyss. God creates out of that, and land comes up out of that, and under the earth is the underworld, and then there's a hard firmament over top, and above that there's more waters, and up above that is the stars and the heavenly Bodies, also heavenly beings. And so they see this kind of this. This is how it's understood. Um, and we talked about that. The next thing we talked about was walk like an Israelite. What does that mean? When we're looking at the ancient culture, um, Israelites were part of their culture just like we're part of our culture. You can go to the next one. And, and it's really important to understand that that they weren't any different than the other people of their times, except when they were. And when we're reading along in the Bible, and all of a sudden, if you study that ancient culture and you see how Israel was different than its neighbor, that's important, that's significant, that's jumping out at us. Um, and so, uh, so the um, go, go back to that last one, because that's where we're going tonight. So, that's really important to understand. So let me let me say it this way, and this is why this is uh, this really cue in. A lot of Christians, when they read their Bible, they think there's this godly culture, and it's completely different and distinct than everything else around it. Then you get a whole group of scholars, skeptical scholars, who have come along and said Israel was just another world religion like every other one, and didn't really see any difference between. And so you get, this, you get this distinction between Christians who have a wrong view of understanding culture, and you get skeptical scholars who have a wrong view of understanding the scriptures, and, 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 these, and, and these two don't come together. When we understand that God spoke to them right where they are so that they could understand what he's saying, um, we then can begin to understand the scriptures a little better for us, and that, it, that they weren't so distinct that, that they're not to be discerned in their times. In the same way, we're to live out our faith in a way that's real in our times. Are we to be in the world? Yes. Not of the world. And there's the difference. They were in the world. They weren't of the world. All right? So where are we going tonight? Two places we're going to go with the Old Testament tonight is even the Bible needed upgrading. And you're going, what? What do you mean upgrading? And spell checking the Bible. The Bible needs spell checking? So those are two places we're going to go with the Old Testament. Um, 
Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hit the New Testament stuff when we get through these. All right. So even the Bible needed upgrading. Um, what's this about? What's going on here? I'm going to quote from Heiser here. He says, wait a minute. The Bible needed an upgrade? Those sound like fighting words to anyone with a high view of Scripture. If someone says they have a high view of Scripture, by the way, it means they think it's, they believe it's inspired. It's the, um, um, uh, uh, applicable to authoritative word of God, it's infallible. That's a high view of Scripture. So anybody has a high view of Scripture, say, what do you mean the Bible needs to be upgraded? An upgrade implies that something needed to be updating, but the Bible is timeless. So if it's timeless, how can it need to be upgrading? That's true. The Bible is timeless. But in this case, I would have to excuse myself from the ring, I wouldn't want to test his hyzer. I wouldn't want to tangle with those responsible for the improvements, the biblical writers and, well, the Spirit of God. So what he's saying is this, and this is what we're going to look at. We're going to discover when we get into this tonight that it was written uh, in a certain time in a certain place and that it was edited by some who came later, by writers who came later who were compiling it for us. And they put some edits in there so that it was better able to be understood in their time. And we're going to actually look at some so you know what I'm talking about. So, believe it or not, there is evidence that the Bible was updated, that, that it was edited by the compilers um, as they were putting this, this whole thing together. Um, now, that may sound strange, but if you read closely, it's undeniable. And so, it's re- the, the reason why I'm pointing this out is, if you, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the reason when we look at it at the end. When we get to the end, you'll see the reason. Let's just point out how this happens. Let's go. Happy New Year. All right. So there's two. I'm going to look at two examples tonight of later editing where the text was edited. Clearly, it was edited from when it was originally written. But what we have is, is edited. All right. Let's look at the first one. The first one we're going to look at is a geographical update. The second one we're going to look at is a preaching update. So there's a geographical update, and there's a preaching update. So let's take a look at the the geographical update first. All right. So this is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 14. You can turn there. You can read along with me here. And this is how the text goes. It starts in verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So you had the kings of the north. There were, set, there were, there were uh, four kings from the north who came down to fight against five kings from the south because the five kings in the south rebelled against the kings from the north. And the kings from the north came down and defeated them in battle and took all these people captive. And Lot was among them and had been carrying all these captive north and all these spoils. And so Abram uh, says, uh-uh, not my nephew. And he gets his trained men, and he goes and attacks them, and he goes from where he's living down in the south, and he pursues them all the way up to the region of Dan. Okay? Catch that. It's very important you know it's Dan. Why? Because there's a chronological problem here. What's the problem? Well, we're right reading about this verse is in the time of Abram. Right? This is is 3,500 years ago. Okay? However... The time of Dan didn't occur till after the promised land was divided by Joshua uh, over 400 years later. Dan didn't exist. There is no Dan. Dan wasn't even, you know, a flash in his mama's eye yet. Or Papa's eye. 
So the problem was, Israel didn't exist at the time of this verse. There is no Dan. Do we have an error in the Bible? See, this is why, why, why this is important. Because there are skeptical skeptics who will come along and go, well, you see, this couldn't, this is not inerrant, infallible word of God. This is just, this is an error in the scripture. No, it's not an error. So look at the verse again. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. All right, so the actual place and that time where Dan uh, uh, is located after, after they settle is a place called Laish. Laish. Okay? So do we have an error? No. The place name was renamed from Laish to Dan during the judges. It was Laish. During the time of the judges, they renamed it. How do we know that? It tells us that in the book of Judges. Here it is in Judges chapter 18. This is in verse 23. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. Okay? So... Clearly, it couldn't have been called Dan in the time of Abraham because it, wasn't, it was named after Dan, who was born much later. But what was it originally called? It was originally called Laish. That was the name of it at the time of Abraham. So why the change? Why bother updating? What's the update? Why do this? Well, they, the, the, the editor who was compiling all this, putting it all together, wanted the readers to know where the place was. They were trying to say, okay, it's like... It's the same way um, if uh, um, uh, there's a – I'm trying to remember what's there right now. When I was just back east – Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, I was just back east, and there's – I'm trying to remember what's there. It's a new – there's a new – I forget what it is. There's a new store there. It's a new store in this one place. And we, we pull up to a light, and we see – I see this store across the, across the way. And, and, I, and I remember – you know, when I was a kid, that was a Pappy's Pizza. And and so I'm talking to my sister and brother. Hey, anybody in the car? Anybody remember when that was a Pappy's Pizza? Oh, yeah, I remember that was a Pappy's Pizza. And so I remember one time where there were some events that happened at Pappy's Pizza, pizza that if I told you might incriminate someone I know, so I'm not telling you what they are. But if I were to say, hey, do you remember that time when we were at Pappy's Pizza and I'm talking to people who didn't know anything about Pappy's Pizza. I was like, "Hey, we were in this. We were over. We were over here by this place." And I give it the name of the store today. Hey, there were some events that occurred that might incriminate somebody that we know, but I'm not telling you what they are or who it was because I don't. You know, we don't need to do that. But but if I referred to Pappy's, we'd have no idea. Everybody would know where it is. But if I said where it is now, everybody would know. That's what's going on in the text. It's important to know this. Why? Because the Bible has a lot of updates like this. There's another one in Exodus, when in the book of Exodus, when it talks about the building the city of Ramses and Pithon. Well, that's out of time. So it was likely that those are later names for what was built at the time. You see, these are not errors. They're clarifications for the readers at the time this is being compiled. Um. If you look at the next one, you'll see a map. Oh, Sally, can you put the map up? Um, so, do you see where Dan is way up there in the north? Do you see that up there? 
and you see where in the south, they're down there by Sodom and Gomorrah, Zeboim, Adama. That's where the battle went on. That's where Abram was. He was down there. That's where it went on. And so it's trying to give you a picture of the distance Abraham had to travel. Now, if you didn't know that distance, and you just said Laish, it's like most of us, we don't know this geography. If I just told you, yeah, he went, he went, well, if we just heard Dan, or if we just heard Laish, we wouldn't know anything. But if I was talking to somebody who knew that geography, and they knew they were down by Sodom and Gomorrah, and that region down there, they said, yeah, he traveled all the way to Dan and captured them, you'd know exactly where, how far he, how far he went, and exactly where the battle went. You see? There's a lot of this that happens in the Bible. It's not errors. This is, this is editors who are compiling this information, giving it to us in a way that we can know, we can discover these things specifically. Remember, remember one thing about the Bible. It wasn't written to us, it was written for us. It wasn't written to us, it was written for us. So we need to go to those to whom it was written and understand it from that perspective. All right, so there's another update we're going to look at. The second one is a preaching update. This is over in Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 starts off like this. And by the way, when you're reading the Psalms, you have these little introductory statements in the Psalms. They're, they are scripture. They're original. Most scholars believe and agree that those op- openings, like if you l- read Psalm 51, can you go to the next slide? If you look at the beginning, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. When you're reading that in your psalm, and you know, don't just go to the first verse. Read those headings. Those headings are actually original. They're part of it. So we look at this Psalm 51, and we say this, this was a psalm that was written to the choir master. It's, it's a psalm that's written by David. And we get the background. This is right after Nathan the prophet comes home. After he's, after he's gone into Bathsheba, and he's killed Bathsheba's husband, um, uh, and... Um, and, and, and Nathan, a prophet, comes in and is convicting him of it. And then David writes this psalm of repentance. It's incredible. It's one of the most beautiful psalms in the scripture. Right? In verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So we get this, the, the ethos, the, this, this passion of David to, of repentance, crying out to God. But the psalm ends by doing something strange if it were actually David who wrote that. David wrote that psalm, but when we get to the very, very end, it asks God to do good to Zion with the command to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Well, now, there's a problem. Okay, let's, let's look at the verse. Here it is in verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What's the problem? Anybody know what's the problem? Why is that a problem? Well, well, I guess you can read it now. Sally jumped ahead there. The walls of Jerusalem didn't need to be built up during the time of David. The walls of Jerusalem didn't need to be built up until the time of the exile, after they were torn down. So this is centuries after David lived. So, so someone later who was compiling these psalms came along and added these couple of verses on the end here. Now, that editorial edition is actually 
masterfully, a masterful literary uh, uh, stroke. Why? Why was it a master liter- literary stroke? Because this psalm is a psalm of repentance. Centuries before, David is repenting for his falling. They went off to exile. What brings them back? What brings the, the rebuilding of the wall? Israel's repentance. As goes the king, so goes the nation. And so the, the editor who is inspired by the Holy Spirit in putting this together is adding these little verses in the spirit of David's repentance, calling the nation to repentance, making it a part of this worship psalm. Isn't that cool? An editor sought to move the exiles to national repentance. Why? Jeremiah said. Remember Daniel? We studied Daniel. And Daniel gets this section from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, the nation's not coming back till it repents. When the nation repents, then God will bring them back. That's why Daniel is repenting. That's why we see a prayer of repentance of Daniel in the book of Daniel, because he says, I read Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said, nation's coming, I'm not coming back till I repent. Guess what? I'm going to repent. Well, you get another Israelite doing the same thing here. And just like that repentance was scripture, as Daniel's doing it, it's scripture here as well. It's just the example that they needed. So, what's the point of all of this? Updating is important to know. You need to know that there were little pieces here and there that were updated by the, the, the later keepers of the scripture who were compiling them, bringing them together, you know, bringing all the books and adding the additional books. It gives, under, under, it gives insight to understanding the process of inspiration to begin with. Most Christians have a, have a wrong understanding of inspiration. Most people think of inspiration along the lines of like, um, like the Koran, where there was an angel dictating something to Muhammad. That is not how inspiration works. Inspiration works in a, it's a, it's this, it's this combined human spirit effort. There's human beings and all of the talent, all of their knowledge, all of their ability that they have in their life, um, are being moved by the Spirit of God to write. And as they're writing, and they're writing with genius level understanding, a genius level of, of uh, literary ability, putting this together. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is stirring them and leading them in this. Inspiration is not a person plugging into the Holy Spirit and describing words. That's not inspiration. But that's what most people think it is. And, uh, and because of that, when we run into these little things, they have trouble. Oh, my goodness, it was updated. Oh, my goodness, somebody changed something. They, they changed, you know. Uh, but if you understand that's not how it was to begin with, it makes perfect sense that someone is, who's putting this together uh, as a keeper of the word of God and bringing this to the people is going to update this in, in an inspired way, just like the original writer was inspired. So it's important to know, um, and, and that inspiration is a process, not a download. Inspiration is a process, not a download. Um, so that's one. Next one we're going to look at is spell checking the Bible. Um, 
what have we got? Okay, so any, let me let me do this super fast. We'll, we're going to hold all the questions. I'm going to hold the general discussion to the end. But do we have any specific questions on that um, updating? Preaching update. Yeah, there was a preaching update. Why? Because you got David who had written this psalm originally, and then this editor came along later, added a couple of lines. Um, you know, there's another way of understanding that some of these edits and updates were done. Those titles, which I told you are original, an editor did all that. Somebody said, this is a psalm of David. This is to the choir master. This is at this time. David didn't write that. Someone put that in there. It's the same same group of people who would have been putting those in are the people who would have been updating it. In fact, they grouped the psalms. The, the psalms aren't chronological. The psalms are grouped in a way to give a message. But that's a study for another time. All right. Yes, I believe so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, they're not, they're not deleting Scripture. They're updating Scripture. And they're editing things in, in ways that um, uh, speak, uh, bring the Scriptures to speak at the time. Um, just like when Moses wrote, he wrote the Torah originally. Okay? Um, uh, but he didn't write Joshua and Judges, Judges and Joshua and, and, and all these other books, did he? No, he just wrote that. But someone came along later. Now, in the end of the Torah, when it talks about Moses dying and all of those things, he didn't write that either. Somebody edited that. Yeah, we don't have a problem saying that's Deuteronomy, you know, and we call it Moses, but he didn't write it. Okay? So... These things were put so that to, to give us a, a, a consistency and a coherence. That's how it's done. All right. Spell checking the Bible. This is the next one. So, um, quote, I'm quoting here from Heiser. The words of the original biblical text cannot always be read with certainty. This is really important. There are, there are times when, when we will look at when the original, when, I'm back, I'm going to say it a different way. There are times when scholars are looking at that original text and they're trying to interpret it best for us. They're trying to translate it, but not just translate it, they're going to interpret first before they translate. They're trying to interpret it, trying to understand it in order to give us the best understanding. But there are times when it's just not clear. It could be this, it could be that. Now, this is important to know. Why is it important to know? Because anybody ever read, like you read a verse in the ESV, and then you read it in the NIV, and then you read it in the NASB, and then you read it in the New King James, and you're reading all these different translations, you go, that don't even sound close. Why? Okay, we're going to look at why. We're going to look at an example of why right here. All right? So here's a famous example. This is in Genesis 49, uh, verse 10. Now there's... We're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to read this verse in three different translations and see if you can pick up how different the, the translators are interpreting this verse. They're not just translating it different, right? So a different translation would be if anybody – how many people we have here speak more than one language or at least some part of more than one language? I know we got a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, all right. So when you're translating – Obviously, there are ways in which you could listen to somebody 
understand what they're saying, and you might translate it two or three different ways, right? Okay, that's a translation difference. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is an interpretation difference. When you heard somebody say something, and it could be, it could mean this, but it could also mean that. That's an interpretation difference. And that's what we're talking about here. And so therefore, we're going to look at different translations. If they're interpreting differently, we're clearly going to get different translations. All right, but it's not a, ter- not a translation difference. So, all right, so we're going to look at three translations. We're going to look at the NASB, the ESV, and the NIV. And we're going to look at this one verse. This is Genesis 49.10. And how was it, uh, how was it uh, interpreted and then translated for us? So the first one is here. This is this. This is the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So the scene here is Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. This is the scene. This is a little bit before Jacob dies. And he's got his 12 sons, and he's proclaiming a blessing over each son and, and their inheritance. And so Judah is getting the, the kingly blessing from Jacob. This is a kingly blessing. This is the blessing of the firstborn in some sense. There's actually two firstborn blessings. One's Joseph and one's Judah. But this is a kingly blessing that Jacob is blessing over Judah. Okay, just to kind of give you the context of the verse. So, so it makes sense. The scepter, okay, the king, that's what a king holds. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, Jacob says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's the key part right there. Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the NASB is looking at a certain Hebrew word, and that's the way they translate it. That's the way they interpret it and then translate it for us. All right. So now let's jump over to the ESV, the English Standard Version. It was the New America Standard Version. This is the English Standard Version. And see how they not only interpreted it but then translated it for us. So the assembler starts off, same scene. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So that means sounds word for word, right? Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Once again, we're, you know, we're hearing the same thing. Until tribute comes to him. Wait a minute. Tribute comes. I thought it was Shiloh comes. Which one is it? And we'll talk about it. Until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, back in NASB, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the same and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But in, 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 in one, we got until Shiloh comes. In this one, until tribute comes to him. Wow, two different ones. Okay, what do we do with that? Well, let's look at another one. This is the NIV, New International Version. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Same thing. So these, they're, 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 they're dealing with the same text, and they're, 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 they're connected. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs. Now that's really different. Is it until Shiloh comes? Is it until he comes? To, uh, or is it until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation is his? And then we get a little bit of difference on the end there now. All right. Let's break this down. So these three translators arrived at different conclusions. Why? 
Because the Hebrew text itself is ambiguous, and this is important for us to know. Sometimes the original texts are ambiguous, and we're not 100% sure. Now, why is that important to know? Because if you come across these passages, I'm giving my punchline ahead of time. I'm going to do it anyway. If you come across these passages, these are not points in which you build doctrines. These are not the places that you go, well, I, this is my translation, and this one's God, and so I'm building a doctrine on it. No, we take what is clear in other places of the Scripture and allow that to inform that which is unclear. That's how you handle and deal with it. Okay? But let's, let's dig in a little bit more for those that want to know how come this is, you know, different. We'll take a look at this a little bit. We're going to look at the Hebrew words, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to know Hebrew to know this. Um, so the problem is that, that there's one... One word, and it's made up of four Hebrew letters. Now, when you're looking at Hebrew, you're going to start at the right and go to the left. Vashin, Yod, Lamed, and Ahe. Um, uh, Shin, Yod, Lamed, and Ahe. Um, and so, in, in English, down there, uh, a way of pronouncing that would be Shiloh or Shiloh. Shiloh. Shiloh is what we would most of the time say. Okay, so... Now, notice the spelling of that, S-H-I-Y-L-O-H. Okay, so we've heard Shiloh before, but it's spelled a little different. Okay, that's important to know. Why? See, what the NAS, when the, what the New American Standard Version does, it takes those four letters, the spelling of, it takes this four-letter spelling of Shiloh, and Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept during the days of the judges of Samuel and David. It was kept in Shiloh. It was the name of a place. And so the NASB says, well, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And so we see this similarity here. So we're just going to make the connection that it's referring to this place because this place is referring to the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what they do to translate it. It's written, um, um, as it is written, this is how the word should be pronounced. But Shiloh is not spelled this way anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. There's a problem. Everywhere else we see Shiloh spelled, referring to the place, it's spelled differently. Now, that doesn't mean NASB got it wrong. Because over time, words get spelled differently. Names get spelled differently. Um, And so, they don't mean they get it wrong. But, if that were my only choice, it might be a good choice. Um, And clearly, it makes sense. Sense. There's some connection you can make to this place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, how it relates to, um, you know, the judges, to Samuel, to David, how it relates to the kingdom. I mean, you could, you could make those connections. All right. But this odd spelling has left many translators to say, ah, not so fast, NASB. How else what, might we look at this? And so there's another problem with translating it Shiloh. And this is important. See, this is where what translators do. Translators, interpreters, are going to look for other documents that are going to help them. Well, we've talked about this other document multiple times. There's this other document. It's called the Septuagint. Anybody know what the Septuagint is? Yeah. So a couple of hundred years before Jesus, the Jews got together the leaders of the, of the Jewish community, and they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek. Why? Because most of the Hebrews in the world didn't live in Israel. Most of them lived out in the Greek-speaking world somewhere. 
And so they did the same thing then for the people that we do now. We want people to translate the Bible into our languages, don't we? (laughs) It would not be really fun if all we did was pass around Bibles that were in original Hebrew and Greek. We wouldn't get very far reading them. So they did the same thing. They translated their Bible into Greek so that most everybody could have the Bible in Greek. Now, here's the thing. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible um, is, is what is quoted by the New Testament authors more than anything else. Now, that's going to be important when we look at our New Testament uh, uh, issue today in a little while. So um, this Septuagint thing keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's an important book to know about if you're trying to interpret Scripture and know about your Bible. It's just like saying this. It's like saying... Um, uh, it's just a translation of the Bible. It's like, hey, it's, it was the NASB for, for, the, for the New Testament believers. Or it was the ESV for the New Testament believers. It was their translation. It was their version of the Bible. All right. So what does the Septuagint literally read? What it literally reads there, instead of until Shiloh comes, it literally reads, until that which is stored away for him comes. Until that which is stored away for him comes. So, back two, three hundred years before Jesus, they're looking at this passage in the Hebrew, and they're translating it from the Hebrew to Greek. And when they put it into Greek, they write, until that which is stored away for him comes. So the Hebrew text used by the Septuagint translator, it didn't read Shiloh. Um, uh, the Septuagint translator saw two things. There's two things that, that they saw. There's four consonants, those four Hebrew letters. Now, this is also one of the ways that, one of the things that might help to know is that ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels. There were no vowels. They would just take all the consonants and put them together. So, like, if you were to spell my first name, it would just be M-R-K. And you know, is it Mork, Mirk, Mark, Murk? What is it? You just would have to know that it's Mark. That's the only way. You just have to know. Um, and quite frankly, most of us most of us could do that. I could write, a, try this sometime, not, not right now, but try it sometime. Take a sentence, just a, a standard sentence, and have somebody just pull out all the vowels and just give it to you. Most of us could read that sentence with no problem. Our, our brain just fills in the sounds. Okay? Well, that's how ancient Hebrews was. It wasn't until later they started substituting some letters for vowels, and then later on after that, they started actually vowel pointing, putting points, little dots and and lines and dashes in there for vowels. So they look at these four consonants, this, this, um, this, this, again, starting from the right, the sheen, the yod, and the lamed and the hay, and and they go, shiloh. Now that's two different Hebrew words. So it could be shiloh, but it could also be shiloh. Excuse me. And that option would result in until tribute comes is brought to him. She, until tribute comes, is brought to him. Lo. Um, So the ES, that's the exact, right there is exactly what the ESV does. It looks at that. It says, okay, the Septuagint was probably looking at this broken in these two ways. And so we're going to use our thinking caps this way, and we're going to come up with this phrase. So the Hebrew Bible may... Um, uh, so of the Septuagint translator, wait a minute, let me make sure I'm, I'm going wrong here. 
That's what the ESV does. All right. Or the Septuagint translator may have been looking at a text that only had three consonants in it. The, the, the sheen, the lambda, and the hey. Why? Because that yod might have been a vowel pointing. It might have been added. And they may have been looking at an older text that didn't have the yod in there, that little, that little what looks like an apostrophe. Um, and so his Hebrew Bible, when he was looking at it, the Septu- Septuagint guy, would have seen Shiloh. Although this is a frequent sp- spelling for Shiloh, the Septuagint translator didn't regard the word as a place name. Instead, he took the word as a combination of two other words, the sheen and the lamed, um, lamed hey. That which to him or to whom. That which to him and to whom. And so he puts all this together, that which to, to whom it belongs. Do you see how, I mean, I know I'm getting super technical here, and, um, but do you see how it doesn't take much to get confused with some of this? Because when two letters can mean a, a phrase in English, and I don't have a vowel there, how do I come up with that? Now, most of the time, it's clear. Most of the time, it's easy. Most of the time, just like for most of the time, us. But there are times when we'll come across these passages that lead us to these points where, um, uh, where we get to um, these three different options. So, so closing out this section, we're just, the, the traditional Hebrew text if I were to go to the traditional Hebrew text that we have today, it's going to be the Sheen, the Sheen, Yod, Lamet, Hesh, Shiloh, until Shiloh comes. And that's what the NASB goes with. But if I look at the Hebrew behind the Septuagint, I can have two options. The first option is Shiloh until tribute comes to him. Or I can have option two, which is uh, um, Shiloh, which is until he comes to whom it belongs. And so that's how you get three different translators coming up with three different things for this one phrase there. All right. Um, now, what's interesting is this, uh, is that if I look at those two Septuagint translations, they both tie to, to the Messiah. They both have a messianic meaning there. Now, that's fascinating to me because here is the Jewish community 200 years, 250 years before Jesus translating this verse in a way that references the Messiah. They are looking for the Messiah in the text. They're looking back in Genesis, seeing Judah, the kingly tribe from which the Messiah is coming, seeing this blessing starting all the way back with the patriarch Jacob over his son prophesying the Messiah. That's cool. That's cool. They, they speak of a person, specifically a descendant of Judah, coming to reign and having tribute bought to him as a king. While translators don't have, a guess, um, don't, have, don't have to guess about Messianic prophecy in dozens of places, this verse has kept them guessing for centuries. But I think it's really fascinating that we can see translators 250 years before Jesus making that messianic connection. So that's just not a Christian thing. People coming along wanting to read into it. And that's important to know because that is something you will hear. That's something you will hear. All right. Are we good? Anybody got any questions on this? 
obscure verse thing. So what did we learn from that? What we learned from that is um, when you're reading through different translations, first off, it's really helpful to read through multiple translations, to use multiple translations. Um, and when you are, if you come across a verse that that is like so different, I mean, it's not just like a different flavor of the same verse, so different, it could be that it's one of these obscure verses. And we studied a few of them when we were going through Daniel. Um, and that they typically have really good reasons why it's a little bit obscure. And so how do we handle that? We don't use that doctrine, that, that verse to build a doctrine. So if somebody starts building a doctrine off a verse that you're going to see that's, that's completely different, no, no, no. You can use it in support of something else, but you don't use it as your basis. You follow that? That becomes, we use that which is clear to help us to understand which is unclear. Where the scripture shouts, we shout. Where it speaks, we speak. Where it whispers, we're probably better off whispering. All right, let's move on to the New Testament. So, in the New Testament, uh, we looked at, um, first thing we looked at was burying hell. The gates of hell in cosmic geography, the gates of hell in terrestrial geography, Jesus declaring war. We looked at that whole uh, understanding of, um, of what the gates of the church, when it says that the church is um, uh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the body of Christ, the understanding that is literally Jesus declaring war. Um, and so we, we spent a time looking at that. And then we looked at the whole concept of guardian angel. Um, and, you know, Matthew, Matthew recording Jesus' words, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see my face, see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Talking about children having guardian angels. Um, and we looked at, um, you know, Heiser's quote, God's agents are commissioned to act on our behalf at his dis- 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 uh, direction. That there are spirit beings around us all the time acting, both those acting for unclean purposes and those acting on behalf of God's purposes. They're ministering spirits on our behalf. And here it is in Hebrew. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Therefore, therefore, the Bible says we are to be hospitable. Because... You don't know if you're actually entertaining an angel. Isn't that fascinating? All right, so we spent looking at that. So what are we going to look at today? The New Testament, does it misquote the Old Testament? Does the New Testament, I hear this all the time, the New Testament, these guys, they misquote the Old Testament. They don't do it right. I hear this a lot. Does the New Testament misquote the Old Testament? Now, we could literally spend, you know, Dozens of passages. We're only going to look at one or two passages tonight. Um, and we're only going to look at one or two ways. But I want us to see that, um, that these guys knew what they were doing when they're handling the text. We may not have known what they were doing, but they knew what they were doing when they were handling the text. So sometimes, New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament. And when you look at that, if, you, if, you, if you've ever, I've done this. I remember doing this early on. I would read, like, where they quote the Old Testament, and it would give you, like, a little letter that you could go and see what verse it is. And you go back into the Old Testament, and you turn back there, and you look it up, and you go, what Old Testament was he reading? You know, you kind of go like that, okay? Um, Now, I just gave you a clue. What Old Testament was he reading 
just we already talked about what Old Testament he's reading. But anyway, just think about that. Um, and they don't match precisely. So what's going on here? Is he actually misquoting the Old Testament? Or are there other explanations for this? So we're going to look at a particular uh, situation here where Luke is recording um, when Jesus actually began his ministry. So there's this passage when he's beginning his ministry. He's in Nazareth. It's a Sabbath day. And he stands up. He opens up the scroll. And he's going to read from the scriptures. And let's take a look at this passage. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. He's reading a description of this the, 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 this is a clear messianic passage. This isn't a Genesis 49 where we're guessing. This is a clear messianic passage, and everybody knows that it is. Coming out of Isaiah here, Isaiah 61. And, but when he's doing this, this is this arrival of the, night, the, the anointed one. He reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he leaves off the last half of the second verse. And there's a good reason why, because that, that yet has to be fulfilled. However, if we actually take Luke 4 and we take Isaiah 61 and we put them side by side, and guess what we're going to do? We're going to put them side by side and we're going to look at them. If we actually took them and put them side by side, we're going to see that they're not exactly the same. There's some differences. Why? What's going on here? What's happening here? Is he, is he, does he just not, did he not like, you know, he failed Awanas that night? Did, you know. That's right, he didn't get his sticky, one word for word. You know, what was that? Is that, is that what's going on? All right, Jesus, Jesus, you know, you needed to be in Awanas longer. All right. So, in the original Old Testament passage, um, there's no reference to making the blind see. That's interesting. In the original Old Testament passage. Or, let me back up and say it this way, because this is important. What we understand from certain texts to be the original Old Testament passage. And I'll make that more clear later. Conversely, Isaiah speaks of binding up the brokenhearted. Well, that phrase doesn't show up in Luke. He doesn't put that phrase in Luke. So since Luke is clear that Jesus was reading from a scroll. So, I mean, he's, he's like, he's reading from a scroll. So he should be reading straight from the Old Testament. Um. What's the, where's this divergence coming from? Why are these passages being skipped? What's going on here? Once again, did he, did he mess up his memory? As a, um, uh, it's not because you know he didn't memorize it right because he's clearly reading. The text is telling us he's reading. All right, so let's do our comparison. So I put them together for us, so we can actually see. Go to the next one. So on the left hand side is the ESV. These are both ESV versions, by the way, but. Uh, we're going to look at Luke, and then we're going to look at Isaiah. And that Isaiah text is based on um, what's called, something called the Masoretic text. So what, what we understand to be as close to the original Hebrew that we have today. All right. So it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In Luke, it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In um, Isaiah. Now, by the way, here's a little, little clue for, for Bible readers. Anytime you see the word God... Or Lord in the Old Testament, in all caps. Anytime you see it in all caps, it is translated. It is translating the word Yahweh. It's a translation of the word Yahweh. It, what it's called is it's a, called a circumlocution. In other words, it's a way of writing it without writing Yahweh. All right, just leave it at that. 
So in Luke, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. In Isaiah, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So far, so good, right? So far, so good. 18, I mean, uh, uh, the next, next phrases. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he sent me to bind up the broken. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. So we see right here we have some issues. In Isaiah, that, that to bind up the brokenhearted gets dropped out. It's not in the New Testament. And he jumps right on down to proclaim liberty to the captives. Luke does. And then, and recovery of sight of the blind. He adds that. That's not in Isaiah. You notice that? All right. Let's keep going. So, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So he's got these two phrases that are kind of similar. And then we get to the last phrase. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And then, like I said, he drops off the end. He doesn't read that end because the day of vengeance is a reference to the second coming, not a reference to the first coming. So Luke doesn't include that. We understand that last section over in Isaiah, why that's not in there. But the others, you see how they're close. They're super close, but there's some differences. All right, what's happening here? So, most of the time, here's what, here's what we need to know. Here's how most of these are dealt with, just so you know. Most of the time, what's going on is that the New Testament writers aren't actually quoting from the original Hebrew. They're not actually quoting from that. They're not actually quoting from a Hebrew version. Most of the time, they're quoting from, take a guess, the Septuagint, the Greek version. Why? Because the New Testament was written in Greek. And so they are writing it. it, it it's, it'd be like, okay, so um, uh, how, let me give you an example here. Let, let's do let's do Spanish. So you're writing a letter to someone, and as you're writing the letter, you decide to quote from the Bible. You're going to quote from a Spanish translation of the Bible if you're writing in Spanish. You're not going to go get a Hebrew translation or a Greek translation or even an English translation. I mean, you might in certain circumstances, but for the most part, you're going to quote from a Spanish translation. You're going to quote from a Ukrainian translation of the Bible. You're not going to quote from an English translation of the Bible. So when the New Testament authors are writing their letters to people who are speaking, reading, and writing in Greek, they're going to quote from the Bible that was their Bible, just like the ESV or the NIV or the NASB is our Bible. That's what they're going to quote from. That's not an error. That's not a mistake. That's them quoting from what was their Bible of the day. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, and so most of the time, the ancient Greek translation, the, they're, they're quoting from this, and it often does not match the Hebrew text from which most Old Testaments were translated. Um, uh, the, the Hebrew text, I, gotta, I just got to throw this out there. Today we translate most of the most of the time we tra- most of our Old Testament comes from something called the Masoretic text, and the Masoretic text comes from a tradition of copying the Masoretes. The Masoretes were these scribes 
who had this incredibly disciplined, detailed process for copying the scriptures. I mean, there was a certain setting they had to do it in. There was a certain, they would measure out exactly certain materials they would use, certain types of ink they would use. Everything, they would line things out. They would write very, very, when it was copied, it was as close to an exact copy that they could humanly come up with. And then they would destroy the old. Why? Because as it got old, and if it became anywhere unreadable, they didn't want any of that. They wanted that destroyed. They wanted this new one to be the standard. And so they, all they did was just copy these things over and over and over again. Therefore, we don't have any copies from the Masoretes that are older than 900 A.D. So the Old Testament, which was written before the New Testament, um, the ma- most of the manuscripts we have date to about 900 A.D., um, now, scholars for a long time kind of challenge, say, look, how, how accurate can, be, can something Moses wrote 3,500 years ago be uh, from copies we have that are from 900 A.D.? You know, how long was between them? They got a millennium and a half in there. Well, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls comes in. When they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and they opened up, there's all kinds of ancient Hebrew fragments of the ancient Hebrew. In fact, there's one copy of Isaiah that's nearly perfect full copy, and they've taken this ancient Hebrew, and they went and they took this, this Isaiah as an example. They took Isaiah and they compared it, this ancient Hebrew Isaiah they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they compared it to what the Masoretes did, and it had over a 95% perfect accuracy. They went, oh, I guess uh, the Masoretes actually did a pretty good job. Yeah. That should make everyone go, wow. So we know... We got some good stuff here, and it's been proven to be good stuff, okay? But, uh, but, but, they, but the other thing that we have is we have the Septuagint, what we talked about. And the Septuagint, though it is not Hebrew, it was translated from Hebrew. And it's an important document because it helps us to understand Hebrew thinking in Greek, so if I read a letter written by a Jew in Greek, the New Testament, and I want to know what would have been the Hebrew thinking that might have been behind those Greek words, I can go re- find those same types of words in the Septuagint, and that will help me understand what he's trying to tell. I'll also be able to see what was he quoting from, uh, and I'll also be able to compare it to the Hebrew text and find these places. And occasionally we find some things when we go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we go back to the Septuagint, that are actually a little more accurate than the Masoretic text. But by and large, the Masoretic text is really good. And that's what's used for most of our Old Testament. So, when we're reading a passage in the Old Testament, like we just read this Isaiah 61 here, we're reading a passage that's been translated from the Masoretic text. But when we're reading it in the New Testament, the New Testament authors weren't using that. They were using, you know, it's like, it's like the difference between somebody writing a, quoting a passage from the NIV versus quoting the passage from the original Hebrew, that kind of thing. All right. So, um, now what I want to do, let's go down. We've got to go down a couple of slides. Um. Keep going. Right here. What I did here, just to help us, is I took the uh, Luke passage, 
and I put it next to the Septuagint. So we can see where Luke would have gotten it. And then he does something in there as well. All right, so this is Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the Septuagint. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me and he has sent me to bring the good news to the poor. We can see how clear, close that is. Super close. Now, by the way, that Septuagint is also a translation of the Septuagint, guys. So you've got to remember that. We're not actually, because we're not Greek scholars, so we're not actually sitting here looking at the Greek. But it's a translation of it from certain texts. All right. The next page. The next part. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. But the Septuagint says, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release of the captives, and to recovery of the sight of the blind. Notice, to heal the brokenhearted um, is, uh, is not included by Luke. He doesn't have that passage. Now, that, that passage was in, the, was in the Hebrew, and it's in the Septuagint, but Luke doesn't include that. But that recovery of the sight to the blind, that is in there. So now we know where Luke got the phrase, and recovery of sight to the blind. He got it out of his Bible. He's reading his Bible. Here it is. He's quoting his Bible. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to summon the acceptable year of the Lord. So we get this, to set at liberty those who are oppressed is not in there, but we have to heal the brokenhearted. So what we have is kind of this convergence of Luke seeing that to set at liberty those who are oppressed somehow being connected with to heal the brokenhearted. How many know when you're brokenhearted, you're oppressed? To heal the brokenhearted. We know that can be deep oppression. All right. So clearly, the recovery of the sight of the blind, Luke's not making this up. He's not making this up. He's getting it out of his Bible. But we also get this other phrase. Um, and, and so what's our encouragement? Our encouragement in this is when you see passages that are quoted, go check them out. Go check them out. Go look at this and see what you can learn from doing this. Um, now, there's another reason. I'm not going to re-throw my notes here. Um, uh, going down a few slides to did Luke make an error? Did he make an error? No. Clearly he didn't make an error. He's quoting from the, his translation of the Bible. He's not trying to copy the text. He's trying to make a point from the text. First, showing where Jesus is reading. Jesus is reading from this point. Okay. In other words, he's not trying to give you Isaiah. He assumes you already have Isaiah. He's just saying, this is where Jesus is reading. He's reading from this point. He's not trying to make a copy of Isaiah for you. He knows you have the Bible, and you can read it just like he does. Right? In fact, he's expecting you're hearing the Bible when you're, in, when you're gathering together. The second thing he wants to do, and this is what's important to him, is he's trying to show you Jesus is reading from the Old Testament. Jesus is reading about himself. His point of quoting this is to say here is where the Old Testament was speaking about the Messiah Hundreds of years before the Messiah came, and he's standing up and declaring it. That's why he's quoting this passage. He's not trying to give you a passage from Isaiah in the sense of, here, everybody needs to read this passage from Isaiah. No, he's trying to say, the word of God has been speaking about this, and here's Jesus standing up. He says, in your hear this passage has been, been fulfilled in your hearing. The incarnation of the word of God. 
So when we study how the New Testament authors are using the Old Testament, we learn a lot about what the, um, the, the New Testament authors are trying to teach us. If, if, if what we're trying to do is go through and say, well, how did they quote this? We're looking at it all wrong. If we see how they used the Old Testament, they're trying to teach us something. Now, all of a sudden, when we can see that, our Bible becomes, we begin to understand our Bible better. Why? Because we're getting into the minds of those who wrote it. We're learning the lessons they're trying to teach us. And I'm going to show you something really cool. It's not in the book. This is extra. I'm going to show you something that's not in the book. This is extra. Only you get it because you're here. All right? This is another use of the Old Testament by a New Testament author. Now, this is really cool. Watch this. So this is in Romans uh, um, chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 10. Now, we all know this passage. And quite frankly... This passage, it's like every other phrase is out of the Old Testament. I could literally spend all night just going through every one of these. We're only going to look at one small part of it, though. Just, but notice, Paul, Paul is literally quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again. In fact, he starts off by re- referencing it. Here we go. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. I mean, there's so much Old Testament right there. That's not funny. We could parse that. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? He's quoting the Old Testament there. That is to bring Christ down. Now he's interpreting the Old Testament, but that's not our deal for tonight. Go check that out. That's a fun one. Verse 7, or who will descend into the abyss? He's quoting the Old Testament. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now he's interpreting the Old Testament again. Fun study to do, but not for tonight. I want to show you something else. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Once again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. That is the word of faith. That that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Again, he just translated the Old Testament for you. He's teaching you. Remember I told you. It's not. It's look at how they're using it to see what they're trying to teach you. All right, now here, here it goes. Now, how many know this? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many have ever heard that? Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, how many know? Um, well, let me read the rest of the verse first. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and, and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have I heard that before? He said, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you confess that God raised him from the dead, if you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. You're calling Jesus Lord. Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall we be saved. Who's he talking about when he says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? What? Who? No, not who is he quoting. Who's he talking about? Who is he talking about we are to call on in order to be saved? 
Jesus. He's made the point. You've got to call Jesus Lord in order to be saved. You've got to call Jesus Lord in order to be saved. And then he quotes from Joel. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's quoting from Joel. Now let's turn over to Joel and see what he's quoting. Starts in verse 30 of chapter 2. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what did I tell you that means when you see Lord all capped? Yahweh. And Peter is quoting this, by the way, in Acts 2. Before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Y'all see that? Joel says all who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Paul says all who comes on the name of the Lord will be saved, referring to who? What connection does Paul want you to make? Exactly. They're one. They're one. They're one. Paul, do you think Paul doesn't know what he's quoting from? Do you think Paul doesn't realize? Do you think everyone who's reading it doesn't know what Paul wrote? It's because we don't make the connections. We miss these points. Because we don't do this very exercise we're doing right here that we don't know this. But every one of them knew what he, what he was quoting from. Every one of them knew what he meant when he was saying that. Because the word Lord can just mean master. It doesn't have to mean in Greek. In fact, we're going to look at this in, uh, in the Septuagint. Um, and it shall come to, uh, uh, where are we going? I missed it. Uh, oh, there it is in verse 30. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Go to the next one. And I will give you signs in the sky and upon the earth and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be changed in the darkness and the moon and the blood before the great and distinguished day of the Lord comes. Right? Now that Lord's not capitalized. Why? Because it's quoting from the Septuagint. Let's see that says L-E-S down there. That's the Lexham English Septuagint. Because it's quoting from the Greek. Yahweh isn't a Greek word. Yahweh is a Hebrew word. You have to know that the Greek translators... We're literally using Lord as a circumlocution for Yahweh. They were using Lord as a circumlocution for Yahweh. They were using Lord as another way of saying Yahweh so that they didn't get in trouble by taking the Lord's name in vain. One of the things, the reason why our Bibles use all caps for Lord and don't actually use Yahweh, because it is an ancient Hebrew tradition to not write God's name so that you don't ever take it in vain. Do not even speak God's name. It's why we don't know how to actually pronounce Yahweh right now. We don't know what the actual vowel pointing is. We know we're pretty good, pretty close. But we don't really know what it is because it's been lost. It's been lost to us because all that's been used for hundreds of years now is circumlocutions in place of Yahweh. 
But Paul knew exactly what he was doing when he put that in there. He was quoting clearly what references Yahweh and says, if you want to be saved, you've got to call on Jesus and you've got to call him Lord. And Lord, I don't mean just master. You've got to know he is one with the Father. Which is no different than what John does in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's doing the same thing, just doing it a different way. He's using a literary device to do the same thing. This is why it's important to know how the New Testament authors are using the Old Testament. Is that not cool? That's not in your book. You won't find that in the book. That's a little extra there. All right. We're done. Do what? Yeah, that's just quoting from, uh, and it will be that everyone who invokes the name of the Lord will be saved. That's just quoting from the Septuagint. That's just showing that that's in the Septuagint. Um, all right. Uh, let's pray. We'll close out, and then we'll have a chance to talk a little bit here. Father, we bless you. We thank you for um, for this time to study your word together. I pray that it, that it would help us to know and understand our Bibles better, to, be, to, to want to hunger to know and understand our Bibles better, and to, to see the miracle that is your word and, and what it is you have preserved for us, that we might know you more, that we might think the thoughts um, of the writers after them, and, and to, to, to get into the, to the, to the pathos, to the, to the, to the ethos, to the, to the message itself. And that we might appropriately apply it in our lives. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you for these things. And just speak blessing over this in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So let me know when we're turned off.